Hey, what's up? Mr. Bill here. Before you listen to this episode, I wanted to shill some crap. Um, one, you can go join my Discord, ask people questions, ask me questions, ask future guests questions. The link for that will be in the episode description. Two, I have all of my music put on Bandcamp now on the first Friday of every month. Um, they take all their fees away. So, I don't know, go get that. Uh, go to my website, mrbillstunes.com if you want to be a better producer or something. Um, Patreon, we're launching one next week. It's going to have tiers and perks and shit. So, go get that when it's out. And you should put ratings and comments and fucking all that shit on the uh, episode thing because that's apparently how we get shown up in search results more. So, uh, yeah, enjoy the episode. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Cool, man. Well, um, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, this is like the second uh, one I've done online ever. I did one earlier today with um, my buddy of the trees. Oh, how's that been? Uh, it was good, actually. I didn't mind it. I, I thought it went pretty smoothly. The conversation felt like a normal conversation, I guess. I think it's just like if both people agree to like not be clicking through tabs on their computer and not looking at their phone and like actually engage in like a one hour conversation, then it can actually work. <clears throat> and I also think like if both people agree to like have their computers plugged into ethernet and to have like good microphones and all of that kind of stuff. Like if you actually put effort into like trying to have a good online conversation, I think it's possible, but I just think I've had so many conversations online that are just, um, I don't know, like me hanging out, playing a video game with somebody else or something like that, you know? Yeah, just like a, like a Ventrilo call and shit like that. Were you ever on Ventrilo or TeamSpeak back in the day? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, not Ventrilo, but TeamSpeak for sure. Yeah, like I, I remember fucking like wasting months of my time on servers with like friends playing Counter-Strike and stuff. And the audio was not... <laughs> You know, it wasn't something that uh, you would expect to hear nowadays, that's for sure. Right, yeah. Um, what version of Counter-Strike did you play? Oh, geez. Um, I started late in 1.6, right before they switched over to Source. Oh, nice. So I, I didn't get into it until Global Offensive, and then I got like heavily addicted to Counter-Strike for, like I don't know, two years or three years. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> what... Uh, what maps do you usually play on? So I usually just play on the standard ones like Dust2, Mirage, Inferno, Cache. Um, what's the other ones? I guess Nuke. Like Italy? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't really play Italy. Oh, see, that's my. That's like one of my favorite maps because it's like all the tight corridors in the market on the right side. Right. Yeah, I've watched like countless amounts of videos on like map building and what makes maps good and stuff like that. <clears throat> and it always seems like the, the the best maps are ones that have like a big center cavity in them and then like two bomb sites on either side and then a bunch of doorways and shit. Basically like, I don't know, like a bunch of choke points where you have to sort of defend and attack from. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of actually uh, like the new uh, game that Riot came out with a couple weeks ago, Valorant. Have you checked that out at all? No, I haven't. Uh, what's that one about? So it's basically Counter-Strike with uh, cooldown abilities from like League of Legends or Overwatch, I would say, is the closest comparison if you ever played that one. Okay, I did play Overwatch for a little while, but I didn't really like it. I never really could get into it for some reason. I just didn't, I don't know, didn't really think it was fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of uh, not everyone's cup of tea. I'll put it that way. I, I've never played Overwatch, but it wasn't enjoyable from what I looked at um, from gameplay. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm very much like an old school kind of FPS player. Uh, so, you know, all the extra frills of like modern uh, FPS games, like all the Battle Royale games and shit like that. It's just like... Just let me click on a dude's head. 
<laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, probably before we go further, we, you should explain who you are because if we don't do that, maybe people will be like, oh, yeah, this guy's a pro gamer or something. Oh, shit, yeah. no. Because all, all we've done so far is just talked about talked games. But Counter-Strike, yeah. No, um, I am Musar. I mean, my real name's Joshua, but I go by Musar online. I make uh, electronic music. I do uh, like film scores and video game uh, soundtracks, or at least I'm, I'm trying to right now. And most of my time is actually spent these days uh, streaming on Twitch, doing uh, music education on there and like fun stuff. Right. So that's like a really interesting thing to talk about because streaming right now has <clears throat> kind of hit a huge wave given the quarantine thing. Um, so like right now to be a vetted Twitch streamer, it's like a it's a great thing, right? Like, have you noticed your stream numbers go up a lot during the the stay at home mandates and the you know the, since the start of the lockdown? Have you noticed uh, an, an increase in like viewers and stuff like that? Oh, one hundred percent, definitely. I've seen my viewer numbers go up. Um, I mean, it's been it's been like not a huge jump, but like I'd say two months ago. I was only getting about, you know, 30, 40 viewers. I considered like, you know, 50, 60 viewers a, a big stream. And I was doing a, a podcast of my own on uh, Thursday night. Uh, right now it's May 4th um, when I'm recording this. So we got like almost 80, 90 viewers on a Thursday night at like 8 p.m. Pacific, which was... Like I never stream at those hours and I didn't even really broadcast it to that many people. And so the amount of viewers has gone up, but like more importantly for me, the amount of engagement has gone up. And I know you've been streaming a little bit. Uh, have you noticed that uh, as well? Or like, what is it like kind of coming into streaming as someone who's like, you've done it before, but it's not like a daily thing for you. Yeah, so for me, streaming is um, something that I started doing in 2014 or something like that. Um, and it's something that I would just do once in a while. I'd just be like, fuck it, I'll do a stream on board and just like hang out on Twitch or I think for a while it was even Ustream. Uh, and I'd just sit around and make bases and do sound design sessions and just talk to people in the chat and stuff. And usually it was just like five people. And I used to think that that was pretty fun. But like anything, I think if you do it for a while, you just need to do bigger and better things and you start to go like, all right, <laughs> the dopamine of five people watching me has worn off. Yeah. Or the like the ability to, to feel like that's cool or something and, and you want to keep like making it bigger. Um, for a while, I was, I was trying to make it not like my main thing, but I was trying to sort of like incorporate it into my routine a bit more. Mm -hmm. So I was doing probably like one or two streams a week for a while and over the years, what I've noticed is <clears throat> it's kind of, I had a phase for a long time where it was like five people. Then I had a phase for a long time where it was like 20 to 30 people. And then I had like the odd stream, like the Harmonica Lewinsky streams with Il Gates, which were like 150 people because he had like a way bigger following than I did at the time. Um, and then slowly over the years, it's just gotten to the point where now when I stream, it's like 100 to 150 people like every time, which is crazy. Yeah, that that's all. That's honestly been really exciting to kind of see as you've uh, come back onto Twitch because, like, there's uh, one thing that I've noticed actually is that there's a really like tight knit community um, of you know music producers and songwriters and like um, DJs even who are now like seeing all these other people come in. I don't know, like, have you ever interacted with them? Like, uh, I know you know the Whittler who has been uh, apparently like a mainstay on Twitch for like five, six years at this point. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I know, you, I know I know him for sure. Like, uh, there's also a, a bunch of other people who I won't, I won't shout out too much. I'll try not to, to promo on, on your podcast, but. Oh, no, it's totally um, fine. Uh, but like there's, uh, these guys like, uh, Carter is a big one. Uh, Nexi is a, is a really popular streamer on there. Um, mm -hmm. and these are all people who have really come to see Twitch as like the focus and the music is, I wouldn't say secondary, but, um, it's as important as kind of the streaming community. 
Um, so when it comes to like things like this quarantine, I've honestly found it really interesting uh, to look at like, you know, I saw Dylan Francis is streaming now, uh, Medicine is streaming, Mr. Carmack is streaming. Like there's so many people on Twitch and I, I wonder like, how good is that actually going to be for us, if you know what I mean? Uh, us by us you mean like the streamers who are, who have been doing it for a long time prior to this quarantine thing yeah exactly exactly all the people who are just kind of like twitch is in a sense our home and we have these interlopers coming in who i'm i'm personally grateful to have them in uh the area they bring their viewers they bring their fan base and they um change the dynamic of the platform so i i think it's a net benefit but it does also kind of make me feel a little weird when like they don't seem to engage with the community if you know what i mean yeah well i mean i think that they see it as a different thing like for instance um i have a buddy dirt monkey right Mm -hmm. who's like uh like a pretty big dubstep artist who started streaming a bit he streams himself djing maybe once a week or something and then he streams himself doing a production session maybe once or twice a week um and he'd never streamed prior to this whole stay at home mandate, but, uh, he, <clears throat> um, gets shitloads of viewers. I mean, one of the sets he did had 2000 people watching it. Oh, fuck. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, he's just not a streamer. Like he, he doesn't interact with the Twitch people or whatever, but I, I don't know. Like I, I don't see any problem with that. Cause it's kind of like a, a rising tide raises all ships kind of thing. Right. Like a lot of the people who were in that stream, maybe that was the first time they'd ever been on Twitch. And, you know, maybe after they saw that Dirt Monkey set, they clicked around a little bit to a few different streams and were like, oh, shit, there's like a whole thing going on here that people are doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think in that sense, it's it's good. Uh, but I can also see like how a lot of Twitch people would be like, hey, like, fuck off. This is my thing that I've been that we do, you know, like mm-hmm. it's sort of like dubstep as well. Right. It's like you have all these OGs who are making it back in the day. And then somebody like Skrillex comes along and sort of gentrifies it for lack of a better word. And now there's this whole fucking thing around it. And all the OGs are probably like, oh, this new shit is fucked or whatever. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say that is somewhat part of it, um, at least from my perspective. Like I've only really been involved in the Twitch music community specifically uh, for I'd say about a year and a half at this point, maybe two years or so. Um, but like, I think the you're you're right about it being like a case of a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and you know, I've seen like I don't know if you've checked, uh, but in the past like five days or something, they actually updated the entire Twitch front page. Uh, to where now they actually have two main categories for you to click on. One's for esports, one's just for music. They didn't have that before this quarantine started. That's oh, a wow. really new development. Yeah, right. That's got to be pretty powerful for music streams too because if people are landing on the front page of Twitch, which I'm sure they are all the time because Twitch's uh, marketing is probably insane, uh, that those people would be landing on that front page and then, you know, it's kind of a 50-50 chance that they go check out a music stream. Oh, yeah, and, like, almost all of the uh, front page, like, featured streams today um, were, like, Bands in Town had a stream. I saw, like, uh, Insomniac had a stream in the past month. Uh, Tomorrowland or whoever runs them had a stream like every single major music business is like putting in front of everyone's face like hey you can see music live on twitch in whatever format you possibly can imagine and i think that that's really exciting you know what i mean yeah oh totally yeah what I wonder is like how much this kind of whole streaming thing is going to stick around post quarantine. Cause I was talking about this with of the trees earlier today. Um, and we kind of both were on the same page about this is that there's been such trauma and such like, uh, you know, like 
scare fear-mongering stuff instilled in us by proxy of this you know the government telling us to stay home and social distance and not go near people and wear masks and, and all this kind of stuff um that it's you don't kind of incur that sort of trauma and then overnight have somebody be like oh it's fine to go near people again and and then just like immediately feel like it's fine you know what i mean like it's um oh yeah uh how can i better explain it like if you told me right now, like if you were the government and you told me right now, hey, it's totally fine. We don't have to social distance anymore. I wouldn't go to a 10,000 person concert tomorrow, like just out of common sense. Oh, no, absolutely. Like I, I've i been trying to figure out like the way that I've been wanting to explain this. And it's tough because I, I don't know if we'll ever get back to normal. Like we'll be at a place that we can call normal going forwards, but it's going to be a new normal. Right, exactly. Like, the idea of going to EDC or going to Tomorrowland or even going to Coachella is just like, I don't know, it has a really weird vibe to it. It's just like, it seems... Almost, it, almost, it seems like you're almost like signing your own death warrant or something. Yeah, it's like, is your entertainment really as important as like everyone's health? Right. And we don't know when there's going to be a vaccine. Like I've heard anywhere from like m- maybe spring of next year to like fall 2022. Oh, geez. Yeah, okay. Like, uh, there's a huge, huge margin from, like, a bunch of different possibilities, a bunch of different factors. We don't even know if it's going to mutate. Like, it's. I mean, obviously, it's going to mutate, but we don't know how. We don't know when the second wave is going to come. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've also been hearing that there's, the second wave is going to be, like, more devastating than the first. That um, And I think the reason why is probably because people will relax a bit and be like, oh, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, bam, they get hit with a (laughs) second wave that's way bigger because everybody stopped social distancing or whatever. Oh, yeah. Like that's that's one of the things that worries me about, um, you know, the situation in, you know, for example, Georgia. Like I have my my sister and uh, my brother in law live in in Atlanta and I'm frankly really scared for their health and for the health of like my relatives who live in the nearby states like this is something that i don't think a lot of people are are taking as seriously as they should like i don't know if you go out on on walks or anything but i've been out like getting groceries for the first time in like a month and i don't see as many people as i had hoped wearing masks yeah well here it's actually i believe not legal to go into a store anymore without a mask on as of april 22nd i think oh shit april 26th maybe yeah like in the last couple of weeks i think the san francisco city made it um like a compulsory thing to wear a mask if you're going into a store but if you're just walking around on the street you don't have to yeah i mean that's actually a, a good thing i think it's uh you know i don't know what do you think Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, like if you're going into a closed area that a lot of people are going into every day, then, yeah, of course, I think you should be. Then again, I mean, I've only watched like two YouTube videos on how a mask actually works and helps from spreading germs. So I'm not like a professional on the subject at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I saw a like it was a meme kind of infographic trying to explain. And it's like using the analogy of, um, you know, if everyone is running around naked and someone is just running around pissing while they're naked, the piss is just going to get all over you. If you're wearing pants, there's a good chance that not all of the piss is going to touch your skin, but is definitely going to come in contact with you. If the person who is pissing is also wearing pants, the piss never leaves their pants. Ah, good point. (laughs) well that's kind of um one thing that i've learned through this whole pandemic is the reason why people get vaccinated i always thought it was so you didn't get sick but it's actually so you don't make other people sick Mm -hmm. it's it's to stop the r zero or whatever right because like um or the r naught or whatever you call it so that's um the r zero or r naught is how many people get infected 
per person that has the thing. So for coronavirus, is an R naught of something like 3.8, which means if I get coronavirus, I would on average infect 3.8 other people, which is a lot. But if those 3.8 people are all vaccinated, then the virus stops with me, you know? Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, it's the whole thing that people seem to get misrepresented uh, with herd immunity. It's not a matter of all of us catching the virus and then that preventing it. It's like it's a combination of people getting uh, the illness and uh, recovering as well as people getting vaccinated so that there becomes kind of like this buffer wall for the people who can't risk getting vaccinated for whatever reasons. Right. Um, I want to circle back a little bit to the streaming thing and yeah, how yeah. how there's like, you know, these bigger people sort of starting to come into the streaming world and whatnot. I heard this guy once, um, he's actually an esports commentator. His name is Thorin. Uh, have you ever heard of this guy? Um, I don't think I have. Thorin? Thorin, yeah, he, he mostly like commentates Counter-Strike shit. But anyway, he was talking about like an analogy of how if somebody creates a thing and then somebody else comes around and like gets that thing and then improves on it and is able to like apply the idea better, um, then perhaps it's that that is more important than the original thing. So I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these OGs make dubstep, right? But then Skrillex comes around and sort of figures out a way to apply it to to pop music basically and that allows a whole new audience of people to be able to engage with it and enjoy it and therefore much more happiness is spread through it and excitement and this whole scene flourishes in its wake and all of that kind of stuff so it's it's like is the initial dubstep the important thing or is the application of the idea the important thing and another example and this is the example Thorin used was like a bridge so like, let's say some guy just like invents a bridge, right? And his mm-hmm. idea of a bridge is just, you put a plank across like two, uh, I don't know, like a, across a crevasse and you just walk across it and you're like, cool, that's my bridge. But then somebody else is like, oh, that's a cool idea for a bridge. And then they build this like really insane bridge that can have cars go over it and trains and like, you know, you can, it has like a giant crazy like engineering and structures and stuff. It's like, obviously that is way more impressive than just like laying a plank across two banks and walking across it. So I guess my, my point slash question slash point of interest for discussion is if through this quarantine, some of these more sort of popular artists who are really big and have these giant followings figure out a way to apply streaming to the entertainment world that they're used to um then perhaps like that's a good thing as well for streaming you know oh absolutely no it's i mean it even starts to touch on a like a broader philosophical question for me of like or just originality and and what is important when it comes to being original like are the people who like pioneer the genre like are the bengas and the screams are they the ones who are like the true originators because they're the forerunners of the style or is Skrillex because he innovated on something and brought it to like a much broader commercial appeal. Like for streaming on Twitch, it's a similar sort of thing where you can look at um, even the origins of Twitch as kind of like a a live blogging um, kind of platform where people were supposed to be like streaming their daily lives. And then someone was like, well, what if I just stream myself playing video games? Even that is in and of itself a variation on that original idea. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've been very, very vocal, uh, over the past year about like, Originality doesn't even really exist. It's a matter of um, taking what came before and synthesizing it with something else that came before through the kind of lens that only you can have because of your lived experiences. Right, kind of like how Kirk Hammett mixed metal with country music and made Metallica. Yeah, honestly. Like having these types of hybrids actually... 
I've been trying to come up with like this uh, like meme visual thing of how to explain the life cycle of a genre. And I've been using Jaws and Bass House for the just the most like prototypical form of like, let me just take two just like completely codified things, Deep House and Dubstep. Let me just throw them together. And he made a whole career out of that. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, or did he go, let me just take house music and distort it more? I guess still it's like an application of two things, right? House music yeah. and distortion. Yeah, it's really, it's like taking something old and injecting something different. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Maybe that could be like a fun uh, exercise, right? Is is just to sit there and think about things that you can mix with other things. Yeah, it's, I, go ahead. I was going to say, I did that one one day with my housemate, but instead of thinking about like genres that we could mix with other genres, we were thinking about artists that we could have play sets in certain uh, settings. So for an example, there's this uh, company called Circle and they uh, have a YouTube channel and it's spelled C-E-R-C-L-E. And they had like Boris Brescher play at like the Louvre or something like that, you know, like a big fancy church in France, I think. Oh, fuck yeah. Um, and they, they do this a lot. They'll take an artist and then put them in this like really interesting location. So I was like, ah, oh, it'd be super interesting to get like a Tim Hecker set on the moon or like a sun in Aquarius set in an aquarium or <laughs> something oh, like that. Or like Where would Rob, you? Rob, Rob Clouth in like a glass factory or some shit. Oh, that'd be sick. Where would you uh, perform if you could pick any location uh, in the... At least, let's say, on Earth. Oh, man. I don't know. Maybe, like, I don't know, the Great Wall of China or something. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> or, like, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. Uh, maybe, yeah. I'd have to think about that a little more. I, I think I did think about this when we had this conversation, and I still couldn't, like, think of the perfect place for me to play in that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure it's sort of, like, uh, I would assume it'd be a bigger version of how you felt playing Red Rocks for the first time, right? Uh, sort of, but this, so not really, because, um, in this conversation, we were just thinking like the most appropriate, like it could, oh. you could be playing to one person, but it's just like, what is the m most appropriate combination? It's sort of like wine and cheese combos, you know, like what oh, is I the most that. appropriate cheese to eat with the most appropriate wines and stuff like that. I can dig that. I can dig that. I, man, that's a weird thing. I haven't even considered that. So this is another thing I was talking about with, um, of the trees earlier is kind of like how switched on we both are to shit like lighting in the studio and like if the lighting is too cold it makes us feel kind of weird and like being creative is difficult or you know if the if the smell of the room isn't right so he's he's really into incense and i'm really into like oil burners for instance um and i think this is kind of like an extension of that thought in some ways where just having like the perfect environment to listen to the to the perfect music for that environment is like, you know, I think something that people might may not think about quite enough. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the, the context that a song exists in or any, or any piece of music rather, uh, is going to be radically different based on where you're hearing it. Like, um, have you ever heard of, there's this band, uh, called the shags. Have you ever heard of them? Uh, no, I have not. So uh, the shags spelled with either two or three G's. Um, uh, I think it's, yeah, the two G's. Uh, it was a bunch of sisters who had no musical ability, but their grandmother had a vision that they would be world uh, touring artists uh, selling platinum records. So she convinced her son, their father, to pay for an entire um, album to be produced and recorded with them. Uh, you can find it on Spotify. It's like early proto-punk stuff that's like, you can't listen to it on headphones. Like the mix is like, you can tell that anything before 1970, 1975, like the drums are only in one ear, the guitars are completely in a different ear. The there's no bass. There's no bass at all on the album. Uh, 
but it's it's so wild to listen to um in like your car or on like a speaker system um and changing how i listen to that completely changed how i appreciated that music right yeah that makes sense so there was this weird thing i guess um that happened when this is somewhat unrelated um mm-hmm. i it just reminded me of it because you were talking about how the drums are just in one speaker and stuff like that but uh when stereo was like first invented i think the beatles were maybe the first um act to ever get to use it and i want to say their engineer's name was dean martin i think is is what his name was um and when they first got their hands on stereo they were like oh this is amazing we can set it up exactly how a real band should be so they they would do shit like just put the drums in the left channel and just put the vocals like sort of in the middle and then the bass is all the way in the right channel and stuff like that um which is kind of interesting because what you can do now with some old Beatles records is just isolate the right or the left channel and you'll find in one or the other there'll be like way more of the vocal track and you can extract vocals really easily from them that way because they, I don't know, had some idea that stereo was supposed to be a linear representation of the real world. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure samples are way harder to, <laughs> to get out of tracks nowadays. Um, so I actually, am kind of curious, like how do you even approach your stereo image? Do you even like make any sort of like broad considerations for it? Or do you just have like the kind of, uh, stereo panning that you like and you go for that? Um, so I actually don't think about it too much. I almost never touch my pan knobs, like almost ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and generally if something is panned too much to the left or the right, like a hi-hat sample or something like, so you know how every now, every now and then you'll get like a, like a break recording and it'll be very much in the left channel or something like that. Yeah. Usually what I'll do is chuck a utility on those channels and then just select left from the drop down menu. So I'm just getting the left channel and I'll just make it mono. So honestly, what I've been finding lately is, is, I'm sort of monoing more shit than I used to. And then I'll generally just have, uh, and when I say mono, I mean like just selecting the left or just selecting the right channel. I'll never hit the mono button on utility. Cause I think that like, I don't know which channel that selects by default or if it like packs both down into the center or something, but I just feel like picking one, either the left or the right is, is the better move for some reason. And I'll usually just have like one thing that's stereo. And that's usually like some white noise on the top or, I don't know, like a bass with some widening on it or something like that. And that kind of fills out the amount of stereo that I, that I usually like. So I don't, yeah, I don't think about it too much. Oh, interesting. What, what about you? Do you, are you a big panner? I am. I am very much a, a big panner. Um, I don't know. Like I tend to think about my tracks very much in terms of like a, a landscape, like, Whenever I listen to my music, like I kind of um, at at some point before it's done, like I will have kind of looked at the song in kind of like my mind's eye in terms of what kind of place is this, um, whether it's like I'm in a video game or I'm in a cathedral or I'm in outer space or I'm in a club. I'm always thinking about like some sort of physical place that I'm in or that I can emulate with um, my stereo image and with things like delay and reverb. I am a big, big, big fan of ping pong reverbs. I definitely abuse ping pong reverbs. um, And that's a big part of how I give space as well as like, uh, I've been getting a lot into like double tracking things, um, like triple tracking, like even synths. Like, have you ever tried to make a synth uh, like a soft synth be double trackable? Um, kind of. So I do that with guitar for sure. Like if I'm playing guitar, I'll, I'll play the part twice and then I'll just pan it hard left and right and all the slight differences in the guitar playing will sort of create the stereo that way because all stereo is is just the difference between the left and the right channel, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, I've sort of experimented a little bit with um, with 
doing that with synths where you sort of duplicate the channel and then just like change a few things on the synth, like open the filter a bit more on one side and detune it a little bit on one side and maybe humanize it a little bit on one side or something like that. And then it'll all of a sudden, if you pan them hard left and right, sound a lot wider because it's literally two different things playing on both sides. But um, I mean, there's also things just built into synths that do that now as well, like uh, parallel filters in Serum and stuff like that. Oh, true. Yeah. I mean, like there's like the pan stereo knobs and stuff. And that's like, I guess my thought process is like, I can remove a little bit of my control because um, like I do a lot of stuff with like sample and hold and like some sort of like free running oscillators and, and random generators, um, which I will say most of that I got from you oh, nice. um, and from uh, Wolg and, and all the glitch people, even though I, I mostly make essentially pop music, honestly. Um, but um, I have found that if I take say like a mid bass patch and I render it out twice where I have a little bit of randomness on, like you were saying, like the filter cutoff on things like the wavetable position on things like the, um, like even like the, the tuning of it. Um, it allows me to have less processing um and i don't know i i think it maybe it's just you know the uh the placebo effect but i find that it makes the mix easier even though i have more tracks i don't know if that makes sense or not you find mixing easier if you have more channels to mix no no no. i mean doing the uh the multi-tracking of a synthesizer um, seems to be easier for me to mix maybe i'm just doing something wrong than if i was using like the, the stereo panning stuff inside of Serum. Oh yeah, totally. I, I definitely think if you can kind of like see a visual representation in that sort of vertical layer-based way in Ableton, if that's what you're comfortable looking at usually, then that can definitely make it a little easier to sort of generate a tangible sort of idea in your mind of what it is that you're actually doing versus doing it in Serum where you can't see the layers and it's kind of all hidden behind a GUI where they've just sort of programmed all of that shit into one knob or something. Oh yeah, I actually, I kind of, that brings up a, a bit of a, a tangent topic if you're up for it. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. And we talked a little bit about this uh, off uh, the podcast before, but I'm curious, like, do you find yourself using any sort of visual uh, meters other than Ableton Spectrum? Oh yeah, okay. So um, Spectrum, I'll start there, is super useful for checking your sub levels. And generally that's all I use it for, uh, is just to see where my sub's metering. And I usually try and keep that after the limiter. And generally once everything's squashed through the limiter and, and all is said and done, I usually have that sitting at about it's just hitting like negative six or something like that or negative three sometimes if it's a banger. Mm -hmm. uh, and then to get my highs relative, uh, actually, I guess I use the meter as well in Pro-L to check my luffs. Um, so I, Pro-L2 is like my main limiter and I pretty much just use the luffs meter in there and the, um, the amount of gain reduction in there just to check how much it's getting hit on the master and how loud it is. And then the only other meter I really use, and I don't even know if you'd call this a meter, is referencing, which is essentially where you load another track into the session and then set your output on Ableton's channel to go out your external output so it's not hitting the same limiter and uh, mastering settings that you have in your session. And then just A-Bing between that track and your track. And what I find is um, usually uh, you can your, your brain is very good at like playing spot the difference, right, between two different things that you're listening to. Yeah. And I find if I just A, B really quickly between somebody's track who I think sounds really good, like Tipper and my track, my brain is instantly like, oh, bam, his has more high frequency or bam, mine has way too much bass or, you know, oh, shit, his snare is just a couple of decibels louder than mine or his hi-hats are just way more obviously there than mine or you know like it's you can just really quickly tell what's different uh and that's what i use for dialing in 
my high frequencies usually. Um, so I get my sub sort of where I want it, like negative three, negative six, because I know that that just hits well on a sound system. And I I just know that from experience. And then to get my high frequencies leveled with that sub, because obviously it's all relative, right? Like if you have no high frequencies and negative six dB of sub on your spectrum after a limiter, you're probably going to have way too much sub. So I try to balance out the high frequencies with referencing and I don't really use a meter for that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're much more um, a use your ears kind of producer or an engineer. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely think that's, that's what you should be. But no, of course. Also, um, I just don't think there's any good way to meter high frequencies on, on a meter. Because, I don't know, man, like if you actually take a look at like an EQ or a meter you'll notice that it's broken up into one third octaves, meaning um, zero to a hundred Hertz takes up one third of the, of the EQ or the spectrum or whatever. Then a hundred Hertz to 10,000 Hertz takes up another third and then 20,000 Hertz plus just takes up like this tiny space at the end or something. Oh wait, I guess it's not thirds. Um, I don't know. You, you know it's, what I it's mean? Logarith- like, yeah, it's, it's power 10. Uh, it's a logarithmic scale. Yeah, something like that. So like to get to, like, you can't even really see what's going on up there if you have it uh, spread out that way. So, um, and most EQs and meters are spread out that way because I guess they just decide that high frequencies aren't that important. And I guess to some degree they're not. Like your, your uh, resolution up there is not as good. For instance, if I play you a sine frequency at... 15,456 hertz and then I play you another sine frequency at 15,432 hertz you probably won't be able to hear the difference right it's like a two hertz difference but if I play you like a 40 hertz sub and then I play you a 42 hertz sub you can almost very clearly I think hear the note difference there so I just think like our, our resolution for different hearing is is a lot better in the lowers spectrum and the mids and stuff like that yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's um, it's it's a sort of thing I think where because uh, our ears are almost logarithmic in perception, um, it lines up pretty well. Like we don't even hear anything in like the the ten like above ten k really. Like we have most people nowadays can hear up to like 17, 18. Technically we can hear up to 20, but like with how many people wear like earbuds, with how many people don't wear earplugs to shows, like I don't think the human uh, race is going to be carrying on with anything super high detail for much longer. I always wonder that about people in the EDM community. It's like you have all these excision fans and bass nectar fans who are going to these incredibly loud shows where these artists like part of the reason you go to the show is because they just don't fuck around when it comes to giant sound systems um and they just don't wear earplugs and stand in the front row and just blast their faces off and go like yeah i'm getting bass nectar and it's just i don't know yeah it doesn't seem like those fan bases are going to be listening to music forever Oh yeah, I was uh, I was kind of at, like watching uh, Squanto stream on uh, the other day, and he was talking about how he has this theory where, um, as dubstep producers and dubstep fans are going to more and more shows and listening to more and more uh, bass music without ear protection their ears are getting you know less and less sensitive to those high frequencies which is why like now you have dubstep that's literally just like a 10 hertz sine wave and a bass Mm -hmm. or 10 kilohertz sine wave excuse me yeah yeah it's like you don't require that detail anymore all you really need is just like the noise oh yeah well it's like that's like the that's almost like the meme like dubstep trap drop where it's like it's a little you just have that fat 808 and you have like that really really quiet tone and it's just like that is the drop is like a kick and some like really super band pass fucking uh mid bass yeah i mean that's one way to look at it another way to look at it is these people have just like got songwriting down to like the most efficient art form possible where they're just they're just kind of like what could i 
like how could I possibly use the least amount of shit possible to make a dance floor work? And I know I've got friends who specifically think about it this way. Like Yeti is one of those people. He's always like, not always, but like, you know, one thing that he's espoused to me as a concept from, for writing music sometimes is how can I make uh, a track that works really well on a dance floor, makes everybody go off, sounds like a full and finished track, but has like two elements, like an 808 and a 10 kilohertz sine wave. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like extreme minimalism almost. Yeah, I, I fuck with it. I think it's pretty cool. But also I understand where Squanto's coming from too, where he's just like, at some point, the resolution of hearing layers and detail and all of that stuff is just getting worse and worse because these people have maybe damaged hearing or something like that. But I don't know, maybe it's a bit of, it's, I'm sure it's a bit of both, right? No, oh, yeah. I, I think thinking of things in this black and white way is always a little bit sketchy. Definitely. I mean, kind of on that, note uh another thing that i i think would be kind of fun to rehash a little bit uh because it's it's kind of connected with this idea of like you know making a good song with as few elements as possible and for me that gets towards like kind of the essence of songwriting or the essence of music and i know you and i have had a couple of back and forth over you know the idea of you know, theoretical music knowledge versus practical music knowledge um, and sort of how valuable uh, one or the other is. Um, And I know that there are a lot of people who they invest a lot of thought into like learning about chord progressions, learning about scales, learning about meters and all this stuff and um then you have people like you or people like skrillex who they just write music you just write tunes and turns out (laughs) the ones who are just writing tunes seem to have much more finished music than a lot of the ones who seem to be focusing on thinking well i I don't know i think it's um i see value in both things right because like one thing i've learned about myself through quarantine is i get a lot of value out of learning new shit and that's something that i kind of forgot for a while i think um when i was just constantly so busy with touring and trying to just shit out new eps all the time so i could have more steam to tour pretty much Mm -hmm. uh is that I really value learning things. Like I've been learning Blender lately. I've been getting back into guitar. I've been learning more about my modules. I've been reading books, um, which is new for me. I never read before. What are you reading? Uh, I'm reading Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus by Douglas Ruskoff at the moment. That sounds sounds sick, actually. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, It's about San Francisco, so you'd probably like it. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, um, Yeah, and, and... so I understand how people like get their kicks off music theory learning and just breaking other people's music down and breaking down old classical music pieces and stuff like that. Um, and then I, again, inversely, I understand how people like, you know, myself just get their kicks purely out of just jumping into Ableton and just doing shit without knowing a ton of music theory. Um, just because I, I don't know, like a, sometimes it's fun to click around as a noob and not know what you're doing and be like, well, look at that. That just happened. And that, that's how I feel currently in, in blender for instance, is I'll just be in there clicking around and then something will happen and I'll be like, wait, what the, what did I just do? <laughs> yeah. It's that, that childlike exploration and wonder. Yeah, exactly. It's like explorative. And, and in some ways that feels more creative because if you know exactly what you want to do and then you do that exact thing, that doesn't really feel creative. It kind of feels uh, systematic. Oh yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny that you've mentioned, like, as you've, uh, been in this quarantine, you've, uh, started to reevaluate things that you didn't really think about before you had all this kind of time. And honestly, I've had almost, uh, the same sort of revelation. Uh, but it also comes down to just doing work in a sense, um, where, I found myself trying to push further and further away from this idea of like intellectualizing the music making experience. Um, And I've like, even on my stream talked a lot about like, you can't think your way into being a better musician. You just have to work. You have to make music to get better at making music. And obviously like, 
learning things is a part of making music. I mean, you and I, I think are very similar in that, like part of why I became a musician is because I feel like there is always something to learn. I'm never done trying to learn something in music, whether it's something music theory related, whether it's something like sound design related. Like I just got into the, uh, the beta for vital that new, uh, wavetable synth. Oh, nice. And like, that's going to take up my whole summer is just like, how do I use this thing? That's very similar to serum, but like also completely different from serum and how am I going to wrestle with that sort of like uncanny valley effect? Like, I don't know if you've experienced that with like Bitwig, where like I've been trying to write more songs in Bitwig, but it's hard because I keep thinking I'm in Ableton because there's so many moments where it looks like fucking Ableton because right. uh, it's the same team uh, or the, or some of the same team. Uh, and that makes it harder for me to do it. And I see that as a challenge, something to overcome. And I see a similar thing with like vital. Right. I get you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you said about the, the only way to get good at something is um, just to do it. It's, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you could like read a book about an assault rifle. That doesn't mean you'll be able to like hit a target if you shoot it. Right. Um, oh, absolutely. And I, I think this also comes back to uh, application of ideas. Like there's a lot of people who know a shitload about music theory, but they just have no execution skills. Like they, there's something to be said, I think, for the skill of um, being able to hear something in your head, even if it's really simple, like a drum beat that just goes, don't get, don't, don't get. Mm-hmm. And just being able to go like, okay, I know exactly how to make that in Ableton, get a kick, snare, and a hi-hat, put them in drum rack, make that beat in MIDI, bam, I did it. Like, that's, you know, there's a skill there of being able to be like, okay, here's the drum beat. How do I, like, what are the systematic steps I need to, to get that into Ableton and do it? Um, or, you know, whatever your medium is. And I just think like a lot of music theory, it's exactly that. It's kind of like theoretical and they're more just interested in like the general concepts and stuff. And that stuff can be fun. And it can also be really inspiring to learn about those kind of concepts, um, you know, because it might make you think of, music from a different perspective or something like that. And I think that's where the real value of those kind of things come from, like music theory. Oh yeah. And I've, I've mentioned this, I think to you before, where it's like music theory, uh, at least aims to be a descriptive study, um, where it's not trying to prescribe a worth or a value. It's not trying to say this is the correct way to quote unquote write music is by studying this stuff. Um, but instead it's looking at all the ways people have just done the work, just written the music and been like, okay, so this guy did this sequence of notes and this guy also did that sequence of notes. And then this guy, like 500 years later also did this exact same sequence of notes and it all sounds good. So why come up with some theories, come up with some ideas on how that can work. And then, um, as, as you've kind of said, like it, it offers inspiration for people where um, I can look back on all of these people and say like, okay, so if I want to sound like these old dead dudes or ladies or whoever from wherever I'm studying, um, I need to do these types of things, but I can also do the opposite. And it's like that whole uh, idea of, you know, if you want to break the rules, it's good to learn them so you can know what the opposite is. Right, right. Yeah, I get that. Um, going back to speaking about like uh, concepts in music theory and stuff mm-hmm. like that and, you know, how they can be interesting and inspirational to think about different things and give you different ideas and, you know, just like generate some different styles of thinking. Um, I want to talk about your stream and the challenges that you do because I think that that that's kind of the same thing, right? It's like you're giving people these concepts and these like different ways of thinking and these, you know, in quotation marks, challenges where they can't do a certain thing or only have to do a certain thing or have to do a certain thing in a certain amount of time. 
Um, and then everybody sends in their results and it's like really fun. I, I really enjoyed doing that one the other day. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the types of challenges that you do on your stream and, and what they are and what kind of thinking you think that they generate. Oh, sure. Yeah. So uh, I will say the challenges are not uh, my idea to, to claim credit for, of course, um, like we were talking about towards the beginning of this podcast, like what is originality, but being derivative in a clever way. Um, and uh, I want to, again, give shout out to people like The Whittler and Nexi. Um, and there were other streamers even before them who had brought this idea in of like, we have a timer. The timer is set for 20 minutes. You have this sample. You have to flip it into a track. Or um, what I tend to do are a lot of more abstract kind of challenges. Um, one that I do a lot is a challenge where we pick three um, kind of artistic fantasy or um, sci-fi kind of illustrations from some subreddits called like the imaginary network. It's like imaginary merfolk or imaginary landscapes or imaginary behemoths or just some weird things that are just like these really insanely highly detailed uh, illustrations of characters and places. And I give everyone three separate pictures they have to pick one of those three photos and then they have a 30 minute timer to take a blank project using like templates or loops or whatever, starting from scratch, whatever they want to do, um, and just write a song that uh, at the end is supposed to sound like the picture. And we listen to everyone's results and because we have three different options, we all get to guess in the chat which one we think they did. And it's a really fun game. It's a good challenge because if the pictures are like different in sort of what they're doing, but similar in sort of tone, you'll get a lot of like crossover. Like let's say um, picture A has like a mermaid cradling the sailor who is drowned or something. And then the next picture has like um, a big open snowy field in like a mountain valley or something. You could write a single piece of music that works for both of those. How do you differentiate it? Right. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting challenge because I guess uh, this is one thing I was talking about with Underbelly one day is music being the language of emotion <clears throat> and you definitely can I think and that that's the interesting thing about this challenge is I, I saw this I saw you do this on your stream the other day and almost a hundred percent of the time it's really easy to be like it's definitely that image and that's I think the most interesting thing about the challenge I mean the challenge is writing something that that is suitable for that image but I mean on the other end of it it's not seems not challenging at all to be able to piece which pieces of music go with which photos. Um, I think in the one that I was watching, there was like a cat and a cartoon character and it looked all like anime styles. And then another one of the pictures was like some angry sort of, I don't know, vicious Viking looking dude or something. And there was another picture as well. I can't remember what it was, but it, it seemed like everyone you listen to, it was just instantly like that's a for sure, or that's B or that's C or, Oh, yeah. Like people have really honestly gotten better at the challenges. And I think that is uh, an interesting part of this because we've been and we I mean, like the the music production community on Twitch, um, we've been doing these challenges pretty regularly as kind of a community only for about, I'd say, six to eight months or so. And watching the people grow like the people who are regulars in the streams actually grow as artists has been really encouraging for me as like a teacher as an educator um and seeing like the first couple of challenges it wasn't as obvious like it really wasn't as obvious but as people started to realize even the people who are new to the challenges their first one it will almost always be a little bit vague, but then their second one, it's like spot on. Their third one, they come up with something that you didn't even think of for the picture, and it inspires you to then do something based on what they thought up. And it's a very communal activity. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's also a really good skill to have actually because if you're ever doing, um, like I just have been writing music lately for video games and then I, I, I was... Uh, so what happens in San Francisco is every night at 8 p.m. Yeah, it's the howl. No, I know. Yeah, everybody yells. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I've you know, been writing music for video games lately and writing music for, um, uh, obviously I did Mum and Dad, the movie. Uh, and to to be able to think of what kind of music would suit visually what's going on is a great skill to have for sure so that's a great challenge oh yeah and also the and overall with all of the other challenges because like i do um you know uh today i hosted a challenge where it was you have to write a song using only sine waves um and a challenge where you had to write a song using only the black keys on the piano um and even like sound design challenges where it's like i take this uh clip of some other streamer on Twitch and you have to take this and turn these vocal samples into a kick drum, a snare, a hi-hat and like a tom drum or a rim shot or something um, all in a short amount of time. And uh, I don't know if you caught or saw anything about uh, Skrillex's live stream that he tried to do a couple weeks ago. Uh, I watched like a few clips of it on YouTube that people had cut from it and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. There was one that I saw was like in the studio with Skrillex and it made it seem like <laughs> the dude was like there and he just like edited out the, the, the fucking stream. But uh, in there, there's a moment where Skrillex says like, okay, so I have this thing. It's, it's sounding pretty good. The sounds are super basic. It's not even like fully fleshed out. It's just like a really solid skeleton of an idea. It took me about an hour. In a typical uh, you know, studio session, I'll have an eight-hour day, I'll write eight one-hour songs, and then the next day, I'll listen back to it, and I'll say like, okay, I really like this song, I'm gonna finish that song today. I like this song, but I need to change this melody. I really like this melody, um, but I don't like this sound. I like this sound, but I don't like this melody. And it is, I think, a lot more efficient in terms of your development as a musician to have these um, like just marathon sessions of generating any idea and then specific, sorry, specific dedicated sessions of um, curating that idea so that like you're not spending a ton of time on an idea that isn't as valuable. And with these challenges, you know, I've written like, honestly, like as many just garbage tracks, just like literally I wish I had not saved the project tracks um, in these challenges as I have a tune where I was like, wow, that's actually really cool and I might finish that and turn that into a song and it kind of breaks you of that um, uh, like that preciousness that you have with your children your music like these are your these songs are your babies and as tough as it is it's really good to learn how to kill your babies so that you can focus on the ones that will become you know the next summit or the next wake me up or the next um um fucking i don't know uh, like old, old town road or something yes exactly gotcha um yeah i've i've experimented with that kind of thing a little bit i, I kind of do that naturally anyway just like write a lot of music all the time and then usually i'll come around once every i don't know 12 months or something and just take stock of everything that i've done um, or may, maybe more frequent than that, probably every few months, I just take stock of what I've done in the last few months and then go like, oh, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. And I put them all in a folder called Good Projects or something like that. Um, <clears throat> have you ever heard of the Brian Eno cards or whatever they are? Oh, Oblique Strategies. Oblique Strategies, yeah. Yeah, that, they're, they're kind of similar to these challenges, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, though Oblique Strategies tend to be um, not just like, you know, write a song using only two notes. Right. It's which, like the drummer now has to play guitar and the guitar now, the guitarist is now the drummer and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a lot of stuff that, you know, 
the intention is the same. The execution diverges. Right. Um, cool, if you man. were, I, I'm curious real quick. Uh, if you were to um, come up with a production challenge of your own, like whether it's, you know, sound design or production or, um, you know, even audio engineering stuff, like what would you come up with? And I hate to put you on the spot right near what I'm assuming uh, is getting close the to the end thing, of things. Yeah, yeah. The first thing that comes to my mind is uh, write a song where every thing is sequenced with single notes in MIDI and therefore you have to create all of your melodies and harmonies and even drum beat rhythms using like uh, arpeggiators and scale plugins and stuff like that. Oh, so everything has to be monophonic? Uh, everything or... has to just be one long MIDI note in the channel. Like no, nothing oh. can exist in a MIDI channel except from one long MIDI note that goes from bar one to bar 150 or something. That sounds so fun. Can I steal that? Of course. Oh, yeah. That sounds and so cool. You're allowed to like automate the, I don't know. Uh, would you say it's legal to automate the MIDI devices on and off and then automate the mute button on the channel or, or is that cheating? I think that's cheating. I think that's kind of cheating. I think, you know, with any type of challenge, there will be a bit of um, fudging of the rules. Like with the sine wave only challenge that I do on my stream, there's always people who are like, oh, well, can I do this? Well, can I do this? Well, can I do this? Well, um, once you distort it, it's a square wave. So Exactly. So um, it's it's a thing where I think, you know, as the person who runs the challenge, you get that final say. Like, how how nice do, do you want to be to your uh, to your participants, or how challenging do you want it to be for yourself? Oh yeah, cool man. Um, well yeah, I appreciate you chatting, and uh, yeah, I'm glad that this worked out. And yeah, if, is there anything else that you want to say to people? Um, um, I guess, uh, thank you so much for having me on. Obviously, uh, this was fun. Hopefully I can have you on, uh, my podcast at some point as well, if you're up for right. it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We already did one, right? We did. Yeah. And I have, I actually, I have that one, the uh, artist interview podcast where if you're, uh, listening to this or watching this, you can go find that on my YouTube page, YouTube, uh, just search for Musar music. I don't have a, a special channel page yet. And also um, Musa Music on Twitch, if people want to subscribe there. Yep, everything. All my socials, all my stuff is Musa Music. I have my branding on lock. So don't don't worry. If you just search Musa Music, all one word, you'll probably find it. Fuck yeah, man. All right, well, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, see ya. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.